0: The Plumley Pod, episode 64.
1: Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education, The Plumley Pod.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley and today's special guest is Professor Gloria Moss. She's been here before. This is back for the third time now. And my goodness me, has she got some horror stories to tell you? I know it's not Halloween. We're a little bit late for Halloween, but my goodness me, I wish I'd known this prior to the 31st. Believe you me, because what we are going to be discussing this morning is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just a quick reminder, Professor Moss, PhD, is the author of over 70 peer-reviewed journals and conference papers. She is the author of eight books. The most recent is Lightbulb Moments and the Power of Critical Thinking, published by Truth University Press. It was written in collaboration with Catherine Armitage. Professor Moss, welcome back to The Plumley Pod. How are you? I'm fine, Sarah. It's lovely to be
1: back in conversation.
0: Well, I'm amazed that you're in such good form, given the kind of materials you've been consuming Before we dive straight into that, I know you want to tell people about an exciting event that you've been planning. So would you mind letting everybody know what's coming so they can get their diaries out? Hint, hint, people go and grab your diaries. Let us know what what it is you're you're up to and then we'll dive into
1: the dark material that you have been consuming. Well, yes, on the back of the book, Critical Thinking, lies the tremendous power of asking questions. As Einstein said, question everything. And so I've been running Questioning, Events now for several years, conferences and holidays. And we've got two very exciting questioning events coming up. So if you're in the mood for questioning history, which is the theme, then you might be interested in the first and the second. The first is 15th and 16th of December. So that's very seasonal. We'll be celebrating a very nice time of the year, lights and festivities. And we'll be celebrating on the 15th by looking at a number of mysteries in London. We'll be looking at the Temple Church, which is very rarely open to the public. It was built by the Templars in the 12th century in 1162. And it has some very interesting links with Magna Carta and common law. And it reports directly to the king. It has a status all of its own. So that will be our first protocol. And then we'll be looking at some of the dragons that guard the entrance to the city of London. There are no fewer than 13. And rest assured, we will not be traipsing around London and visiting all 13 dragons. But we will look at some of the most, the largest, shall we say, which are quite close by to the temple church. Why do we have dragons guarding the city of London? Is there something very dark behind these dragons? Will we be asking ourselves that question, and with the dark theme in mind, we'll be going down to near Charing Cross, Craven Street, to be precise, and visit the home of Benjamin Franklin. Yes, the to-be president of the United States who lived in Craven Street, and they found human bones in the garden of the house that he lived in. Now, they've come up with all sorts of stories to explain these bones, And you might want to buy into those stories, or indeed you might not, particularly in view of the fact that in our second event, which is a conference in March next year, we'll be visiting, if you want to, before the conference, because we like to have a little holiday before the conference, this is a questioning history conference, we'll be visiting the Hellfire Caves in West Wickham. And they got up to all sorts of unpleasant activities, which I I don't think we'll talk about today, Sarah. But the good and the great attended these activities at the Hellfire Caves, including Benjamin Franklin up the road in London. The Prime Minister of the day also was a regular attendee and also the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So back to our first event, 15th, 16th December. We've got a day visiting. The temple Church, the dragons, and Benjamin Franklin's house in Craven Street. We'll be scratching our heads to see what on earth we can make of these human bones that were found in his garden. And then, as if that's not mystery enough, the next day, on the 16th, I'm going to unveil some research I've been doing for well nigh 30 years. And I've written a book, It's very near to being published. But I thought I would share some of these secrets. And they are secrets that have never, ever been revealed before. And if you're of a questioning disposition, and that really is a condition for coming, because otherwise you might be upset. If you are of a genuinely open mind and questioning disposition, then come along and find out what links the resurrection of Jesus to the Essenes to the Templars, to the Holy Grail, to paintings like the Mona Lisa. I tell you, my interpretation of the Mona Lisa is unlike anything you will see anywhere else. And to Romeo and Juliet. And we could go on beyond that to Microsoft and Apple and Harry Potter.
0: This definitely should have been the Halloween episode. My goodness me, what horrors you have brought me. My
1: goodness. That's the 15th and 16th. And if you're interested in finding out more, email learningholidays at protonmail.com. And then in March next year, we've got a conference questioning history with some fabulous speakers, including Mark Devlin and Joseph Olson from the US, who will be talking about the connection between money... And wars that they go together very, very closely. And as I say, Mark Debenin asking important questions. If you want to find out more, same email, learningholidays at protonmail.com. And as well as visiting these Hellfire Caves in West Wigham, we'll be visiting Cliveden House on the Thames. Now, that was home to the American Astor family, and they have a very interesting history indeed. And it was also home to the perfume home fair. So I think probably enough said about that. But email me at learningholidays at protonmail.com and I'll give you more detail on that. We can stick the links in the description. So once you've
0: finished listening to this podcast, you can go and click on these things down there in the chat, in the description, and you'll be able to go straight there. Now then, now then, now then, we've had a little off-air chat, haven't we? quite a large one actually, about all of the dark nonsense going on in the university system and not just in the UK. You've been telling me some frightful things about the United States. So I'm just going to throw it wide open and say the system appears to be entirely bent.
1: What is it you've been looking at? How much more can you tell us about this, Professor Moss? Well, Sarah, I guess we're very much on the same page, you and I. Your ideal of education is, how would you describe it? An environment in which people can ask questions? Yeah, it's somewhere where insatiably curious people go
0: to find things out, to ask each other difficult and searching questions, to pore over the evidence, and to reach, as best as we can, some kinds of conclusions, even if the conclusion happens to be we need more information. That's my kind of aspiration for
1: real education. And there have been periods in our history when People have thought like that about, say, universities. And I'll give you just one quick, for instance, George Beadle. who was president of the University of Chicago in 1960, and he was somebody of great scientific eminence. He shared a Nobel Prize in 1958 for research into the role of genes in regulating biochemical events within cells. So he was a man of great eminence who was asked to lead Chicago University. And this is what he described as the objective of education. And I think we should keep this in mind when we look at what's happening today in universities. And I think you might find, Sarah, that you agree with George Beadle. What he said was that one cannot search for truth with a closed mind or without the right to ask questions or doubt at every step. Any injunction to close the mind, to restrict one's beliefs arbitrarily, or to accept on authority without doubt, violates the concept of freedom of the mind. And I think that's what you were talking about, Sarah. Freedom of the mind is what you're in the business of promoting through your wonderful education. So let's just keep that in the back of our mind, this vision of George Beadle for a university education that is there to encourage freedom of the mind. And as we look at what's happening in universities around the world, let's see how well they match up to that ideal, shall we? So why not begin at Cambridge University? I mean, this is near the top of the league tables. And last year, they appointed a new vice chancellor, who's a woman. She comes from America. She was president of Princeton University. Her name is Professor Deborah Prentice. And yes, she was appointed last year, but just a few weeks ago, she gave her first address to the Senate House. So this is a very live issue. What can I say? Well, one of the issues that she mentioned during her address to the Senate House was the importance of free speech. Oh, why? Right. She said that she was there to encourage more free speech. Wonderful. That's just in line with the freedom of the mind that George Beadle talk to us about. But within a few weeks of giving the speech, the library at Cambridge is writing out to all the Dons, this was in October 2023, questioning that the Dons report books that might be, quotes, offensive, harmful, or problematic. Now, I can see your face. You look a little bit shocked. They're books. They're books.
0: Yes. They're supposed to be read and digested and if disregarded if you don't like them. What do you mean, offensive Offence can only be taken, it cannot be given. That's what they should be learning at Cambridge University. Offence can never be given, it can only be taken. So if you're offended, the problem lies with you, does it not? Mm. Reporting books. Sounds like the
1: Stasi. So this is October 2023. And uh, this comes from somebody who's, she's a psychologist. This isn't by way of an ad hominem attack. It's just fact. One, One of her areas of research interest is gender stereotypes. And in a paper of 2002, the conclusion was that the findings of her study were consistent with numerous research demonstrations of the persistence of traditional gender stereotypes. So I'm asking myself, where does that actually take one? And that was the conclusion. There was, I have to say, there was a dazzling array of statistical detail. And I think you would have loved that, Sarah. But how does this finding advance us? Well, you know, if it'd be me, I've done many, many years' research on cognitive sex difference and leadership. I would say, actually, let's look to see if there are any biological basis to these gender stereotypes. One of the stereotypes is that women are more nurturing than men. Men are less so. But that female predisposition of more nurturing can advance us greatly when it comes to leadership because best practice leadership involves demonstrating empathy, giving confidence to other people, really factoring in the individual. So there's a form of leadership called transformational leadership. One of the elements, one of the four elements of transformational leadership is individualized consideration, treating people as individuals, understanding them. Now, if females have a stereotypical predisposition to be nurturing, well, that's to be celebrated. So I don't know quite where her research on gender stereotypes takes us because he doesn't allow it to go anywhere. And then since we're talking publication, I was very interested to know what it takes to become a vice chancellor at one of these so-called top universities today. And I found a reference in a magazine article in Forbes magazine, and this was an article from September this year, that described the new vice chancellor of Cambridge University as the author of, quotes, more than 50 articles and book chapters. On gender studies. Think we got chapters. I mean I'm just thinking in my mind, I'm thinking of another professor, Professor Zizek, he's a philosopher. His output includes hundreds of articles and papers and more than fifty books. So what does it take to become a vice-chancellor of Cambridge University today? Well, perhaps we can gain something from something she said, which is that being in post there at Cambridge. Provides great opportunities to demonstrate how our leading universities can together harness their expertise to solve, wait for it, global problems. So maybe it helps to have a globalist outlook. A West
0: tattoo, a World Economic Forum tattoo, is that, is that what it requires to be a, a vice
1: chancellor these days? Goodness me. Well, it's very interesting. We should stay because Cambridge is one of handful of British universities which is a member of the World Economic Forum grouping of universities which is known as the Global University Leaders Forum. Gulf for sure. And so Cambridge, yes, and Oxford and Imperial are indeed members of Gulf. And if we look at the previous Vice-Chancellor at Cambridge, Professor Stephen Toop, if that's how you pronounce his surname, T-W-N-P-E, he left Cambridge under something of a cloud he was trying to push through his policies on freedom of speech, which would have encouraged academics to report on microaggressions on the part of their colleagues. You know, a microaggression is if you wink if somebody comes in the room. Well, that didn't get passed. So he retreated back to the institution from which he'd come, which is the Monk School of Global Affairs. Yes, you've heard that right. He was director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And he's returned to his previous role as director of the Monk School of Global Affairs. Well, if you take a look at the website of the Monk School of Global Affairs, then you might be interested to know that the World Bank is listed as a student research partner. And you raise your eyeball, yes, quite as one does. And that option. Modules include the following two, wait for it, sustainability in the world is one, (laughs) and another is immigration and pluralism studies. So, do you get the sense, Sarah, that in order to become the vice-chancellor of Cambridge University today, you need a certain je ne sais quoi? (laughs) That's one way of putting it. (laughs) I think that's rather good. I think you should leave it at that. You need a strong global pedigree, shall we say.
0: You need to reek of the West. (laughs) You need to have a a rainbow pin badge, a rainbow flag pin badge. Goodness me, it's
1: disappointing. And one shouldn't really single out Cambridge for comment. Because if we take, for example, the case of Thomas Jefferson University, and this is July this year, Mark Tikachinsky, who's a molecular immunologist, so that's quite important, I think, he was appointed to the top job at uh, Thomas Jefferson University in July last year, July 2022. And he only lasted the course for a year. He had to resign in July this year after liking a number of tweets that questioned the COVID treatments, that questioned Big Pharma. And he was also liking tweets that questioned gender reassignment involving children. He must have been one of
0: my followers. This is what I was talking about. That's so why I'm in the, on the naughty step. So he was forced to step
1: down for liking all of that.
0: <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful. That is curious. Thomas Jefferson, having somebody that is very interested
1: in, what did you say, molecular uh, immunology? This particular man was a molecular immunologist. He exercised the very faculty that we opened with, the faculty that George Beadle talked about of having freedom of the mind. And he felt obliged to step down, having exercised that faculty. And there's a deep irony here because Thomas Jefferson and the universities named after him is famous for having said that if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be, and that people cannot be safe without information. Yep. I recall
0: you telling me that before indeed. Indeed. It's very funny that you should come up with this right now because I've been looking at the Oxford University website rather a lot lately, and there are so many jabby articles, so much stuff about vaccination. I'm wondering if some of these elite universities are kind of selected, so Oxford will be the jabby one in the UK, Thomas Jefferson, the jabby one, but I don't know, but they're certainly worth looking at because there seems to be a large amount of articles on the Oxford University website regarding jabs and immunisation and all of that stuff. I never really thought of Oxford University in that regard before. Oxford reminds me of the dictionary of words, of language, of the law, perhaps. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, very interested in immunology, vaccination and all, all of that stuff. Very
1: curious, very curious. I don't like it. Well, I think we're both in agreement on that one. So let's move on from Cambridge and to the work agenda, which seems to be alive and well in universities across the world. And it's not just me saying so. There's a professor of sociology in Pennsylvania, Alexander Rilwe, who in August this year, he described the creep of woke thinking in higher education. And he talks about the goal in many universities worldwide being greater diversity, inclusion and equity. We all know what that word equity means, I think. It's something very different from equality.
0: Yeah, for sure. It means cheating on end-of-year dissertations, etc., with the grading and the marking to make sure everyone gets a first, whether they're good enough or not, and whether it's comparable in any way, shape, or form to first-class honours degrees that have been awarded throughout history, which obviously these days they are not, or the vast majority are not in any case. Mm. Yeah, it very much resonates with what a secret art professor was telling us about a month or so back on this very podcast. She was bemoaning the state the levels that they have sunk to now when awarding first-class honours degrees,
1: even in her short time at teaching at university level, disgraceful. I think on average, they're awarding first-class classifications to 30% of students in universities. Some universities even award them to 50% or even a little over 50%. Whereas back in the 1970s, there are instances of universities only awarding them to about 8% of students. Right. You're absolutely spot on.
0: It's like giving gold medals to half of the field, isn't it? You have a 100 metre race and let's give four people a gold instead
1: of one. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. And very recently, I think we're not talking higher education here. We're talking the system that feeds into higher education. In Oregon, the state has determined that the school leaving exam that would normally assess English and maths should no longer be a certificate of assessment which should simply be a certificate of attendance.
0: Well, that's because English and maths
1: is racist. Did you not know, Professor Moss, English and mathematics is racist? And of course, another hot topic, apart from race, is biological sex. Are we allowed to talk about that today? Well, the American Anthropological Association in October this year, so just a few weeks ago, cancelled a panel on the importance of biological sex as a social and scientific category for its annual conference. So there's no category now for biological sex in the American Anthropological Association. And in case you think it's just America that's sort of going down that way of thinking, very recently, this is all recent news that I'm bringing today, Michelle Donelan, who's the UK Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology, actually said something that many of your listeners might actually find rather interesting and reasonable. And she said that the government would protect scientific research from the denial of biology. And she claimed that scientists are being, this is her words, told by university bureaucrats that they cannot ask legitimate research questions about biological sex. And she said that she wants to free universities up from these constraints to inquire about biological sex. So maybe she has the freedom of the mind a little bit somewhere in her thinking. Well, what happened after she said this? Was there a chorus of approval from UK universities or chorus of disapproval? Well, I regret to say there was a chorus of disapproval. 2,000 UK scientists from British universities signed an open letter, no less, denouncing her comments on the basis that they, quotes, do not reflect the view of UK scientists. So, 2,000 British academics do not wish biological sex to be discussed. And if you're interested in finding out more about that and anything else I'm saying today, do go to the website of Truth University. That's www.truthuniversity.co.uk. And you'll find this information in recent newsletters that we've put out at Truth University. And you can find links to some of the supporting documents there. But of course, again, US, UK, these are not isolated cases. Over in Australia, the Queensland University, over the summer this year, the university wanted to force medical students to do an assessed piece of work, which was called a white privilege assessment. I beg your pardon? Mm, that's exactly what the medical student said. Good for them. They said, no way did they want to engage in a white privilege assessment. And so the university was forced to withdraw that. And it goes on. In Florida State University, a professor of criminology, this is an interesting one, Eric Stewart, he was dismissed last month, September, for having perhaps faked some of the data in his papers. And he's a criminologist. Sort of really quite funny. The sort of topics he covered <laughs> were racial discrimination in the criminal justice system, relationship between incarceration and social factors. He had to, he's had to retract three papers. One, a study suggesting a link between historical lynchings and white people's perceptions of black individuals as threats. Another studies had to retract how white Americans viewed black and Latino individuals as criminal threats. I won't go on. You get the picture. So he's had to withdraw these papers, which must in their time have incited quite a lot of hate, I would think, because a lot of his findings were targeting white attitudes of white people. And I hesitate to say it, but mistakes of the kind that he's been hauled up for are not an isolated occurrence. And I think in our chat. Sarah, I mentioned the case of a senior professor at Harvard University, no less, and that's the number one university in America. Her name is Francesca Gino, who's on gardening leave. I think that's the polite phrase that we use. Francesca Gino, senior professor at Harvard, is on gardening leave. Her research area wasn't criminology, no, but it wasn't that far removed. Her research topic is dishonesty, and she's been forced to retract three of her papers on the basis that the data sets that underpinned her papers were, can we think of a nice way of putting this? Dishonest? <laughs> yes. Fake, bent, fraudulent?
0: Yes. The jokes write themselves these days. Goodness me. I think this is a
1: very important case because she had nearly 150 collaborators. Accomplices. So does the buck stop with her? That's my question. And those collaborators were involved in collecting and handling the data for the journal articles that she's been obliged to retract. And some of these collaborators were from fine universities, Northwestern, South California, Toronto, and another colleague from Harvard. And I would just remind listeners that, I don't know if you're familiar with the crest of Harvard University, but emblazoned across it is the word veritas which we all know means truth. Any comments on that one, Sarah? For once,
0: I'm speechless. You couldn't make this up. You just couldn't. If this were a script, it would be sent back for not being believable, for not being realistic enough, wouldn't it? It would be refused, rejected. I want to say I cannot believe it, but this is what happens when you start to tell small lies to yourself, to people around you. Those lies become bigger. And before you know it, 150 of you are collaborating or accomplices to lies
1: fraudulent research? I don't want to see. I think the jury is still out, in all fairness, and investigation is underway regarding these collaborators. So who knows? Were they completely innocent? But there's a further question we need to address, which is the journal articles in which these retracted articles appeared. And they were top journals, such as the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And that one's published by the American Psychological Association, and there's another one called Psychological Science. Are they completely innocent as well in having published this work? How did this work get passed, and what does that say about their peer review process? How do you defend that? So moving swiftly on from this story about Harvard to the subject of funding. Funding is, of course, immensely important across the whole curriculum in universities. And, well, what can I say? A principal of an American college known as Bard College was also rather embarrassed to have it disclosed that he had allegedly scheduled two dozen meetings with Epstein in order to raise funding for his college. And why should that raise eyebrows? Well, we know Epstein has passed as a sexual predator, not terribly nice, and. Bard College, the college in question, has the stated aim, listen to this, of seeking to inspire a love of learning and idealism. So I don't think I need to comment on this, do I? It's not appropriate. But then, of course, it raises the further question about funding in general. And I wonder if people are aware that over a 10-year period between 2010 and 2020, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation dispersed over 11.6 billion dollars in funding to 471 universities in 66 countries. And that includes money to universities in the US, which takes 72% of his funding, Europe, which takes 16% of his funding, with Oxford being the university that takes the highest proportion, 375 million donors to Oxford, and Asian universities having the third highest share of that funding. Now, for some reason, I think we should really consider the phrase, he who pays the piper calls the tune. I say for some reason, if whoever's funding a university teaching and research, are they going to have an effect on what is taught and what is researched? And I guess that we would all say, yes, without a shadow of a doubt. The person funding the piece of research will have an influence on the outcome of that research and the teaching that flows from that. And, well, I don't know what one says in the face of these facts. Is it right that Bill
0: Gates is involved in the Rhodes Scholarships? That's one of the things that he funds, or have I misremembered
1: that? Well, one of the things, and I should have mentioned Cambridge because uh, why did I leave that out? Cambridge received from Gates the biggest grant that any British university has ever received in the year 2000, and that was for $210 million. And then a few years later, Cambridge gave Gates an honorary doctorate in law. I thought that was a bit rich because Gates didn't even finish his first degree at Harvard. So there he is with a doctorate in law. And Harvard actually had also given him a doctorate in law. We could go on. I just finished with one bit of news about league tables, because many people, students and parents alike, often make decisions about universities on the basis of the league tables. And a very important part of the data that informs the league tables is the National Student Survey. And that's a, a survey of student attitudes. It's called the NSS. And if you've ever been anywhere near a university, you'll know that they spend an awful lot of time. Collecting data for the NSS. And data that comes from the NSS affects about 20% of the final league table score that a university has. Well, new research published in October this year has dropped a bit of a bomb on this league table. And I think you've got something to say about league tables from your conversations, Sarah. But this particular bomb comes in the form of research by psychologists who've said that actually. The element of student satisfaction does nothing more than reveal something about the personalities of people who have completed the survey. It doesn't tell you anything about the teaching that they're being asked to comment on. This is their bottom line finding. And, well, I think this means that we can no longer trust these lead tables and the National Student Survey element in that. And so we have to question it when the Office for Students, which is the main body responsible for student welfare in Britain, says that the National Student Survey, the NSS, and I'm quoting them here, is a key component of the quality assurance and wider regulatory landscape in UK higher education. Can we still go on believing that after this bombshell finding by these psychologists, which I have to say was published in a good journal? Assessment and Evaluation in Higher Education. And again, if you want to see the reference to that, just go to the newsletter number two on Truth University website, which is www.truthuniversity.co.uk. And just to underline their conclusion, it is that over half of student satisfaction is attributable to unalterable individual level personality traits such as neuroticism and extroversion. And it was based on a sample of 409 students studying at 63 universities across 20 countries. So it's a detailed piece of work. And before we look at your thoughts on the lead table, Sarah, just want to give you a final opinion on the lead table. And interestingly, it comes from the European University Association, which represents 800 universities across the whole of Europe. So it's an important body, the European University Association. And they've published a paper in October this year. And this paper identifies, would you believe it, problems with these league tables. One of the issues they flag up is lack of transparency around methodologies. That's a very important one. And another one, it really concerning this one, they say that the parameters that are used are very limited, and that the limitations of these parameters actually leads to the exclusion of lower ranking or smaller and specialized universities. And so they say that the very leap table system, far from improving standards and intellectual creativity, actually they suggest forces conformity. So the very opposite To what, do you remember when we started and talked about George Beadle at Chicago in 1960, he talked about the importance of the freedom of the mind. And so it seems an awful lot that's going on at the moment in formal higher education is threatening freedom of the mind. I think I've said enough on this point about league tables, but you said something so interesting when we had our chat, Sarah, before we started.
0: I was echoing the secret art professor when we last spoke on this same podcast. She's currently a lecturer at an art school in the north in Scotland. Her university is in the top 10 for teaching. And so she knows all about the National Student Survey because she explained and revealed how that's done. And it's completely baked. They could literally cook the books. And she went through in great detail how it's done. Essentially, the key component is that students who are going to graduate that year do not want to graduate from a university that falls outside of the top 10 for teaching because it won't look good on them. So even if the teaching is diabolical, they lie and say it's good because they don't want the university that they graduated from to slip down the league tables because actually that won't reflect well on their degree and how it's viewed by people in industry or people in other areas of academia. So she was talking about the absolute scandal that is these league tables and funnily enough, I didn't think of this at the time, but you just made me think of it now when you mentioned the smaller, more specialised universities being overlooked and the way this information is collected, it kind of discriminates against those smaller specialist universities. It's very interesting because when I did my first degree at the University of Manchester, Russell Group University, however, I didn't choose to do my PGCE, my teaching qualification at my university, the University of Manchester, I actually chose to go to Manchester Metropolitan University University which is a terrible thing because that's an old polytechnic. That wasn't actually really a university back in the day. It was by the time I got there. But of course, it's not a red brick. It's not a Russell Group University. However, it was a specialist and it had a very, very good reputation at the time for preparing and training classroom teachers. And of course, when I did my PGC in secondary mathematics, I wanted to be a classroom mathematics teacher. So I actually chose to go to a less good university purely because it was a specialist in the exact thing that I wanted to be excellent at. And this is exactly where these league tables don't even serve the purpose they're supposed to serve. You have to go off the testimony of people in industry, or in the case of my area, you have to go and ask senior teachers in schools, where do they recruit from and why? And they would have told you in that area that Manchester Metropolitan University, the ex-Polytechnic, had a far better reputation for producing outstanding and good teachers than did its supposedly superior university, the University of Manchester. And it's, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Not every university can be exceptional at every particular specialism. I mean, that's silly. Of course they can't. It's far too difficult. Even the very top universities with the most funding and that can attract the best professors they still have to specialise in some way. You can't have all of it all of the time, right? So that was a long, long time ago when I did my teaching qualification, that this problem hasn't gone away. In fact, it sounds to me, from what you've said and what a secret art professor has told me, that it's getting worse. It's getting worse,
1: not better. Well, yes, it's not a pretty landscape. <laughs> I think we can say that. But there are solutions, of course. I mean, you're trailblazing with your education, Sarah, in secondary education and doing things that are being neglected by the mainstream. And this is what we have to do when the system isn't serving us well and is not offering up those wonderful ideals that I quoted from George Beadle of allowing freedom of the mind. Then we have to create systems outside of the legacy system. And I suppose that's where, for my part, Truth University comes in. Because if you want freedom of the mind and you want to question then this is the place to come. And you can do a short research project, 12,000 words, choosing a subject that really interests you. Or you can do something longer, a master's thesis, which would be 40,000 words. And you can really get into your subject and do what we should be doing, which is questioning and doubting at every step. And my goodness, there is so much to doubt and question. So, If your work reaches distinction standard, then we will publish your book so that the book can go out into the world and really change other people's thinking at the same time. Because I'm not sure these institutions can be changed. What do you think? I completely agree. They're gone. We lost
0: the institutions a very, very long time ago. What we're seeing now is the inevitable wreckage, the inevitable carnage. Earlier today, I was talking about the fact that the horse is already dead and yet we continue to flog it. That horse is not getting back up, it's finished. And it's about how quickly or how slowly we choose to realise and face up to those facts. You can't reverse this. The damage is systemic, it's gone on for too long, it's gone unchallenged. And you now have sort of probably two, maybe even three generations of university professors who have been completely captured by this sort of what's labelled quite lazily sometimes as cultural Marxism, but it serves a purpose to call it that because, broadly speaking, a lot of the problems do stem from these kinds of views. But also, more interestingly perhaps, it's the influences you've already touched on with the people like the Bill of Melinda Gates Foundation. All of these uh, corporate tentacles, or these what I call fake charities, have these long tentacles into all of our institutions. You can't persuade uh, the University of Oxford to give up all of those millions. They're not going to do that. Of course they're not. That's crazy. So you think you're going to change their mind? Well, unless you have Gates's kind of money, forget it. It's not going to happen. We have to do the hard work, get up off our backsides and start producing things of our own. And there are many, many people who, unlike yourself, present company accepted, of course, haven't done anything. They're just complaining about it they're dreaming pie in the sky kind of dreams. They haven't produced any resources. They haven't published any books. They haven't made their own university like you have. We actually have a primary and a secondary school provision where we're primary and secondary. And even some top infants are accessing our materials now because we've realized that the population is so dumbed down. It's not possible for me to come in as a secondary school teacher and teach secondary school level mathematics anymore. I teach other subjects also, but these days, the quality or the caliber of student that you would receive in year seven, the first year of secondary school, if you're not from the UK, sort of 11 years old, it's nothing like the average standard of a, an 11-year-old that we used to get even 10 years ago. So, you know, I've had to end up teaching right the way down to pre-primary school when I my specialism used to be GCSE and A-level. And now I'm having to go all the way back because the damage is being done so much farther down the trail. And I, I'm getting tired of these... Uh, Armchair educationalists who want to complain and want to say, Oh, we should do this and we should do that. Well, what are you doing? What are you doing? However, you have been very busy, haven't you? Because there are some fascinating developments at Truth University. That's truthuniversity.co.uk for those listeners who want to go and check it out. Can you dig a little bit more into the latest? stuff that you've published on the front page of your website regarding the idea for new courses new materials what is it you, you've been up to i know you've been very very busy because we haven't spoken for ages what is it you've been doing just dig into that a little bit more for people who haven't perhaps heard of truth university before they're new to the podcast whatever tell us what it is you're up to there it's very interesting well
1: as i said at the beginning we do a lot of outreach work we we run conferences we've got one coming up on the 15th and 16th of december at the heart of all of this is questioning, as we said about that wonderful president, Chicago. And so, yes, we've got a tour of very interesting parts of London, and then I'll be giving a seminar revealing the fruits of about 30 years of research of some secrets that will completely transform the way you look at the world. I can't put it in any other way. And then in March next year, on the, right at the beginning of March, we've got a little holiday visiting Cliveden House, looking at the, what on earth were the Astors doing there, and perfume Fair, and then the Hellfire Caves, and uh, then a conference, a full-blown conference on the 2nd and the 3rd of March. And apart from that, we're busy writing because essentially people need to understand that the system that we have of universities has really failed in the purpose that we outlined at the beginning that George Beadle so eloquently described that one cannot search for truth with a closed mind. One needs freedom of the mind. And yes, Truth University is a home for that. And we've got a a research student doing a master's degree who is looking at a topic which I don't think any other university would allow him to look at.
0: I can vouch for that. You told me secretly off air what it's about. It's very interesting there's no way in hell a single university probably anywhere in the world but certainly not in the UK would be allowing this kind of research to take place in case he finds
1: something interesting right? Yeah, quite <laughs> and I remember the case of a man who was a psychotherapist who went to a university I think it was Bath Spa my mammy serves me correct he wanted to do a PhD on the subject of transgender regret and he wasn't allowed to do that I wonder why so yes I mean, there are a lot of topics that need to be investigated that can't easily be investigated within the current system.
0: Allow me just to run down some of the things that you're very, very modest, but I know you've been working very, very hard because the topics on which Truth University offers research supervision, so you can do a master's degree or you can do a diploma, so long as it's a piece of research. You've got history, prehistory, the study of extraordinary sites around the world, biblical history, the Dark Ages, the Gunpowder Plot, the Great Fire of London, the Royal Society wonderful. You've got the history of science, another uh, massive subject area. What else? We've got the arts. We've got business management, and marketing, health, law, critical thinking. Oh, my goodness. Critical thinking. Hallelujah. At long, long last. Absolutely wonderful. And I don't mm. know if you're allowed to talk yet. Maybe you're not about another course that you're putting together with a team, isn't there? Are you allowed to talk about that
1: yet or have we got to wait till next time? Thank you, Sarah. Yes. Well, we're, as a team of us, working to get a new degree off the ground in natural medicine. And we've set this time next year as the target for starting that. What level will this be, do you think? It would be a fast degree. Yes, it would be a fast yeah, degree. Bachelor, with with a wonderful, wonderful, component, but also a practical component so that people can actually practice. And the point is that if you engage with us in these research qualifications, for example, at diploma or master's level, then you can actually create the new knowledge this has been hidden from view for so long. We don't have the normal student-teacher relationship where the teacher is authoritarian. No, you are a partner in creating new knowledge and we desperately, don't we, Sarah? We desperately need that new knowledge to come to the fore. So if you've got a bit of time on your hands, please do do contact us. Perhaps I could give a contact email. Yes, do. And I'll leave a link in the description for your contact
0: email as well for that, but please do give it. But yeah, I was just going to say that we need to discover knowledge. Rather than creating knowledge, we need to discover the truth. Yes. Rather than, you know, any kind of my truth or your, we need to discover the truth in an unbiased, critical way. And then we'll have honest people, honest researchers, honest academics, we'll actually have some decent stuff to quote, some decent stuff to cite. Because Hmm. all of these dodgy studies that we were sniggering about at the start, well, imagine how many other studies have now quoted from these dodgy studies I know some of them have been attracted now, but it's too late because they would have been cited in numerous times across a load of bunch of other studies, right? Mm. Because that's the nature of research, particularly meta-analysis. So they're just creating this whole pile of meta, all of these lies. If you can imagine lies as long tentacles that's now going through all of these research papers. I mean, Mm. we're like starting at ground zero. We're almost starting at zero knowledge. Let's have some truthful studies. Let's have some truthful dissertations. And then we can start to, you know, build real knowledge. You know, it's, I would rather know nothing at all than have my head filled with fake stuff. I would rather know nothing at all. I do feel in many ways like starting again. But whilst that's, some people might be quite pessimistic about that, I'm actually quite excited. It is exciting. Because discovering the truth is
1: interesting, isn't it? It's, yes, it's, it's absolutely exciting. And we're thinking of starting some journals of our own. I mean, this is all down the line, particularly in the area of natural medicine. But uh, you asked me to give a presentation a little while ago on my research on the Dead Sea Scrolls site of Qumran. And there's a very good example from that about some of these lies in publications because one of the interesting, well, there are many interesting things about this site. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves by the site. And the site is a very small one. It's got 10 baths, that's all, with steps going down into them. And that's about it, really. That's the site. And the official interpretation of the site is that it was home to a group of, one of the groups of Jewish people at the time called the Essenes, and that they prayed all day and then ritually abluted in the water. And, well, I looked with great interest at the findings. And some of it didn't make sense to me, for example, that a very high proportion of the corpses that were buried in the ground in the cemeteries, four cemeteries for a very small site. Yes, there are four cemeteries around this tiny site that a very high proportion of the corpses had madder dye in their bones. And there was an article published in the 1970s in, wait for it, Nature magazine, which is allegedly one of the top journals of the world. And it was on the subject of the madder in the corpses. And there were several people acting as co-authors in this paper who were from a medical school in Israel. And their conclusion was that the matter in the corpses was used for ritual magical purposes. That was their bottom line conclusion. And I read that with interest and I was sort of scratching my head and thinking, well, what is there about matter? I mean, why would they have put the matter in there? How would it have arrived in these bodies? Because I started to do some reading and, and I discovered that it's a very fast die because matter was also used... As a dye, a red sort of purple dye, but it wouldn't have leached from the clothing because it's a very fast dye. Therefore, it must have been drunk. And so, why were the people drinking madder? So, I reread this paper from Nature because, of course, one's been educated to treat any article in Nature magazine with a fair degree of respect. And I looked for some information on the constituents of madder. I mean, isn't that one of the things you'd want to know? Having ascertained that they're drinking it, it couldn't have got into the bones any other way, why would they have drunk the madder dye? Well, there was nothing in the article on the constituent parts of madder. So I did my own research, and lo and behold, what did I find? I found that it contains quinine. Quinine is a major component of the madder dye. And I then looked at contemporary herbals, contemporary to the site, Dioscorides, Pliny, and they all recommended using madder as a medicinal substance, to cure a really vast number of ailments. So what can we say about that article in Nature magazine? Building on what you said, Sarah, about lies upon lies, I'm not saying it was lies, but they left out. To lie by omission to me, they've omitted one of the most
0: obvious questions that you'd have to ask. Once you've ascertained that they're ingesting this stuff, well, the next question is why? You don't have to be some kind of genius to think of the next step to me, this is like a lie of omission. They're deliberately not including vital pieces of information. And it's very interesting that it happens to, when you mentioned Quinine, a lot of people have gone, oh, because we heard an awful lot about that during the recent scandemic, didn't we? That'll have rung a few bells there for people who perhaps just began their journey of awakening only in the last three or four years, thanks to the scandemic. So yeah, fascinating. I mean, I, I can't possibly say why that guy left it out. Perhaps we will never know, but it's at the very least curious. So like, for me, I if I had to bet, if I had to guess, I would say leaving stuff out deliberately is almost as bad as, as writing things that you know to be untrue. Very interesting. And you
1: know, i so it's not good enough. Several of the co-authors were attached to a medical school. Ah, yes. And so it is a question to say that you might have expected them to ask.
0: I remember you telling me it's exactly it, isn't it? They've all been through the Rockefeller School of Medicine rather
1: than, you know, doing... Genuine research of their own. So we have a new world ahead of us, and we can all help co create this new world of knowledge. Or, as you said, Sarah, not create, but discover. We're discovering.
0: And then what made me think of it is your uh, logo for Truth University is a magnifying glass, isn't
1: it? Like a detective. Oh, it's such fun doing this. It really is. It, it's as good, if not better, than a holiday, I would say. Travelling in your mind, you don't have long airport queues traffic jams. Just travel in your mind. I can't recommend anything better. And it's just a giant <laughs> detective story.
0: <laughs> it is. It's You know, and children would be much more interested in the pursuit of academics if things were not given to them in such a boring manner. History is one of the most guilty subjects. If you look at secondary school history classes, you basically get made to learn a bunch of facts that have been pre-decided by other people. You're not allowed to question them. You have to remember them and then regurgitate them and apparently that's history. I mean, no wonder so many children find it deathly boring when actually, in reality, it's one of the most fascinating subjects that mm. there could possibly be. Yeah. But it's the lies, isn't it? Yes. It's about human behaviour. Yes, and certainly is. My goodness me, we've covered a lot, haven't we? This in front this afternoon, ready for Sunday morning. My goodness Thank you so much for coming on and and pulling all of this information together. It's so lovely to get the perspective from the articles you've been reading on the other side of the pond, the United States, Canada, you know, not just always focusing on our own country, but it really shows that this problem is much broader and deeper. And I like the idea of showing people that this isn't just a problem at these universities or those over there. It's all of them. The scam works. When you talked about the Glimmelinda Gates funding, when you see how all-pervasive that is... I mean, come on, like the people who are going on about taking back the institutions are, well, they're either crazy or they're uh, disingenuous. It's time to move on and and to do things properly. Do it the long way, do it the hard way and do it properly. You know, I think it's very exciting, the stuff that you're offering there at Truth University. And I do encourage people to go and take a look if they haven't already at truthuniversity.co.uk. The website has been Updated and expanded. I was having a gay old time this afternoon looking at it, all the all the things I hadn't read before. No, it's a uh, really, really well done to you because I know that you work tirelessly. You're you produce so many articles, and you're also still writing books and publishing books. You know, it's very, very difficult. You're doing the work of two or three people, and I know because I am too. And it's not easy. You know, we're in some respects isolated voices, but we are growing. There are other lecturers and professors and teachers now who are starting to
1: just starting to put their head above the parapet and say, actually. Well, absolutely. And I ought to add that Truth University Press, which will publish the best work that's submitted by students, has published a book that many listeners might like to get hold of. It's called The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed. And if anybody needs persuading that this is not a system in which you want to spend time. And money. And money, a lot of money. Don't go to university until you've read this book. It won't take you long to read it. Right. It's the first thing you should
0: read before you apply to any university because you need to know this information before you make such a huge financial decision, let alone a decision of what you're going to fill your mind with. What a good point. That to me should be recommended reading for all sixth formers, anyone doing A levels. I would make it a set text. If I was last room teacher now, I'd be telling all of them to read it because you've got to make an informed and intelligent decision about what you do for the next stage of your academic career. And unless you have access to more than one side of the story, how can you possibly make an informed, balanced judgment? To me, that's insane. It's a no brainer. It's a, a must read. And it's nice
1: to say, Susan, so, because I think you've read the book and I certainly have. Yeah, I have my coffee here. Yep, It's really failing us, the university system. But we want, don't want to dwell on the negatives. But it's there. If you feel a little bit insecure about moving away from that system, then I would counsel you to read that book, The Dark Side of Academia. And it's got a wealth of information on so many areas. For example, it talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls. It talks about the Great Fire of London. It talks about the way that research on homeopathy was sidelined by the same magazine that I mentioned, Nature, the editor of Nature, John Maddox. He, he gave Jack Benveniste, who discovered the fact that water has memory, he gave him a terrible time and I was actually instrumental in destroying his career. I mean, there's a lot of information in that book. And if you are interested in getting those books, then can I suggest that you buy them from Truth University rather than Amazon? Only because then you're helping support the development of Truth University. And then the email to write to is infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. Super. Thank you very, very
0: much indeed. You've been so generous with your time, and I know you're extraordinarily busy. We've covered a fraction of the information we have here at our fingertips, but thank you for taking the time to lay it all out for us. I appreciate that very much, and especially all of the stuff that you are doing in the background. I wish you all the very best with your team getting together your new degree. That's very exciting. Hopefully that'll be ready for the next academic year. Is that right? September 24, we're hoping. Is that possible? It might be ready. (laughs) It's a big job, isn't it? I know, I know. (laughs) Exciting. Hopefully, hopefully we will see. You'll have to come back and update us anyway as the likelihood of whether or not you'll be able to get the new degree available. But very, very well done. It's, you know, this stuff, it takes a lot of hard work in the background that people don't necessarily see or even perhaps appreciate until it's there presented and with whistles and bells on it. But I, I know the kind of work that's going on in the background. And it's very, very nice to not be alone in that.
1: There's plenty of people talking, not quite so many people doing. And I, I have to say, I take my hat off to you, Sarah, for all the wonderful things that you're doing for children's education at both primary and secondary level, and even infant, you mentioned. Yeah, we've got some young ones. Amazing. I don't know where you find the time to do all that you do. So thank you for having me on again and wonderfully stimulating conversation.
0: An absolute pleasure as always. And I very much look forward to welcoming you back very, very soon so that we can uh, get on and talk about the next section of things that we have lined up for our listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Professor Gloria Moss of truthuniversity.co.uk. You can find links to everything we've talked about in this discussion in the chat underneath this podcast. And remember... As I always say, your children can either be educated or schooled, and these things are mutually exclusive.
1: Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit saraplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.